You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome to 7MA Deal Talk. We're here today with Mark Hug, who's a longtime insurance executive and a good friend of Seven Mile Advisors. He, he uh, among other things, ser- served as executive vice president at, at Prudential. And we're also here with Nick Gerhardt, who's the current chief administrative officer at Farm Bureau Financial and also was the insurance commissioner of Iowa some time ago. Uh, gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing, doing great, great this morning. Well, we're all here on a on a Friday in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. And it's um I think it's times like I don't think any of us have ever seen. And I think today what we wanted to do is is talk a little bit about the impact of COVID-19 on the insurance sector, both the life insurance business as well as the PNC business. As I mentioned, these are just crazy times that's, you know, number one, impacting the, the health of uh, a lot of people in our country and in the world. And that, that's the biggest thing we're all concerned about that. And then another thing that you have to think about is what's the impact on economies and business and industry, et cetera, and so forth. And for sure, insurance is going to be and is one of the industries that is impacted in, in a substantial way. And I think you two are, are great people to share some perspectives on that. One of the things that we've noticed at Seven Mile, at least from a technology perspective, is that this whole crisis has really drawn even more attention to some themes that already existed before the the crisis. So some like technology trends and and whether it be the connectivity with customers, employees, or artificial intelligence, or wearables and all these different things. Those were like on the table prior to this event. And now it seems like this is even accelerating the need and interest for those types of things. So that's among the different things that, that we'll talk about. But before we get into all that, it'd be great if um, if you two could introduce yourselves and provide a little bit more background. So Nick, I'll hand it over to you first. Yeah, great. It's, uh, I'm Nick Gerhardt. Uh, great to be with you. Thank you. And uh, Iowa kid, born and raised in uh, Iowa. Went to undergraduate school at the University of Iowa. I got a joint degree in healthcare administration and, and uh, law. So I uh, went to school for way too long. Uh, and uh, my career in insurance has been about 15 years, life and annuity, some health. I was commissioner of insurance for four years, as you mentioned, and currently serve as the chief administrative officer at Farm Bureau Financial Services. Thanks. Mark? Uh, Thanks. Happy to be here this morning. Actually, this afternoon, excuse me. Let me start with uh, the fact that uh, I'm a Midwestern boy, very much like Nick. I've had 40 years in uh, this insurance industry, most life insurance, some annuities. And I've had the opportunity to work at a number of large life companies as uh, a C-suite executive along the way. I'm an actuary by training. Most of my career, however, was spent in distribution and marketing and product and not necessarily the actuarial side. Um, as you mentioned, my last corporate job was uh, EVP at uh, Prudential, where uh, over my period of time there, I headed distribution. I was the CMO there. I was the chief product officer for the, for the life division. Uh, today, I'm one of five managing directors uh, 
for a management consulting firm, Paradigm Partners International, as you mentioned earlier, PPI. We're uh, good friends with Seven Mile. And the five of us help insurance companies formulate next step strategies, as well as we help insure techs uh, bolster the, both their direction and approaches to the marketplace and having a blast doing it. Excellent. Well, Nick, I'll just open it up with you with kind of a broad question. I mean, as, as with this crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, just what, are the, what are the top few things that, that you're dealing with at, at your company now that, that this is impacting? Well, you know, I think you mentioned it first, you know, the just the human impact and, you know, the disruption of lives and people having to uh, work remotely and, you know, all the strains there. And what I would really say, though, you know, for, for our carrier, you know, the low interest rate environment, it was always been low for a long time. I think it's gone lower. I think this panic has uh, probably instituted lower for much longer rates. So that's going to really hurt uh, the annuity and life insurance industry. I like to say when there's no spread, it's pretty hard to uh, sell a spread-based product. So that that's kind of front and center. And you know, in the property casualty side of the business, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, business interruption coverage. But I've been following that issue in the industry, and it's clearly going to be a huge issue, up to and including some state legislators that have decided they're going to try to pass laws to have retroactive coverage, even if the policy excludes a pandemic or virus. So you're seeing that. You're seeing uh, Congress talk about it. Heck, President Trump talked about meeting with a bunch of chefs and restaurateurs, and he himself said, I'm going to start reading uh, insurance policies and look at these exclusions. So I imagine the president might even have a business interruption policy somewhere in some of his properties. So I think that's going to be a huge issue for the property cash industry for some time, and you're going to see a number of, of lawsuits. And really, the other thing I would just point out is it's pretty rare in life where we get to kind of see the future now. And so I'm looking at impact to distribution. I'll let Mark talk a little about that. But impact to distribution, agents, you know, it's pretty hard to have an agent facing a customer when they're social distancing or physical distancing. So, you know, those companies that haven't had uh, straight through processing, you know, you're not going to find a paramed right now. You're not going to go get an APS right now. So a lot of challenges in, in the business if you're using agents. The creative ones are using technology. They'll figure it out. But uh, it'll be very interesting to watch this unfold. So that's a lot. That, that's a lot, Nick. I, I, I guess I'll just start with just the most basic question: Is you guys were just with your employees as you were transitioning to work at home? Did that process work as well as you thought it might? Not as well as you as you thought it would, etc. I mean, what, what was that transition like for you as a company, just to move everybody working from home? We have just under eighteen hundred employees in eight different offices, so. You know, I would say we have probably 1,600 of them working at home remotely right now. And shockingly, it went smooth. And, uh, you know, we're, we're still in business. Our, our client members are being served. We're still, you know, looking at new apps, processing new apps, claims are being paid. And so it, it's gone shockingly smooth. So I have to give a, a true shout out to our IT team and the leadership there with a guy named Casey Decker. He's done a heck of a job uh, with his team getting us uh, ready for this moment. and. And talking to other carriers, it seemed to have gone pretty well for most of them as well. So, you know, I think the industry as a whole has responded quite uh, well to this. But, you know, I'm sure things are getting dropped. And, uh, yeah, we do have people mm -hmm. in the office still. You have mail has to be open still. There are some new applications. There are people that still have to, you know, show up. And uh, the executive team and others are kind of taking turns bouncing in and out. I, I have to concur with Nick there as well. 
the companies that I'm in contact with didn't skip a beat when they needed to to work from home uh, with all of their staff. I frankly think the experience that the industry had, both the distributors and the carriers, with the previous swine flu back in 2010, where, where many of us worked from home then, not the entire organization, but many of us, I think uh, we learned a lot back then. I think IT was able to gear up their servers to handle the huge call vo- or the huge uh, volume that they're going to receive there. And uh, I, I have a client distributor who on Friday were told uh, couldn't come in the office. On Monday, they were up and running and, and continued their sales process. So I give kudos to, to all of us in this industry who I think were ready for this. Maybe not this particular pandemic, but ready to work from home if necessary. Yeah, you know, I wonder. Inevitably, there will there will be things that we learn from this period. I mean, no no one likes this. It's it's all very awkward, and and there's real inconveniences. But I do wonder if there will be some learning that comes through this, where people are like, you know, the uh, working virtual thing actually wasn't that bad, and, there, and and there's some merits in it because we we talk to companies all the time, and I would say more often than not, that's the comment is that it, 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 you know if you're in a service type industry. Like we are, then 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 the transition is um, is not that difficult. But Nick, one thing you mentioned, and I've read these these headlines as well, this notion of the government or regulatory bodies somehow imposing on insurance companies to disallow certain types of exclusions in in connection with business interruption insurance. How how exactly? I mean, is that is there some precedent to that? Have, have we ever been through that before, where people say, yeah, I know that it's Excluded in the policy. I know you guys didn't underwrite for it or correct premium, collect premium, but nonetheless, we'd like you to pay a claim. Is there some precedent for that? I think there's some precedent to having some retroactive laws. Um, there have been some Supreme Court cases on the constitutionality of you know challenging the contracts clause in the U.S. Constitution. Not at this scale, though. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, so I would say there's some precedent. I, I almost have a hard time saying it's really legal precedent because it's it's not on point, obviously. And, and really, if you think about the constitutionality of, of changing the contracts and, and how the contracts clause would uphold, I would think for many of these cases, the industry would probably prevail. Now, I'll tell you this, you know, depending on the type of product, there's ISO exclusions that are pretty tight. You know, some of these products are manuscript and, you know, if you think of a of a large uh, publicly traded real, you know, like Chipotle or somebody who's a big company, they're not using an off-the-shelf product. They're using the brokered manuscript product. So you're going to see different definitions out there, but most of what we're seeing is a way to help these small businesses under 100 to 150 employees. And yeah, I have a hard time finding any real precedent that hits this kind of a level where you're going to change contracts, you know, because the folks I've sort of talked to in this world, I've said, well, nobody really collected premium on this, so our carrier is going to go back and collect the premium they would have charged for this because you really can't insure a pandemic, let's be honest with you. It's almost uninsurable in my mind. And so I, I do think you know, it's going to have some legal challenges, and, and I have a lot of empathy for the small business owner. I mean, I'd imagine a lot of these folks bought these policies, and when the governor of a state says you got to shut down, they're probably looking at their BI policy and saying, hey, it should be covered. So, you know, I get it, but it gets really wonky really fast. And if you read these policies cover to cover, you're going to see uh, how the exclusions really do prevail. But when you read some of these declarations, they are saying things like, well, it does cause property damage. So you're going to see a lot of really interesting legal work and lawsuits. Yeah. 
Yeah. Nick, the, uh, the, the other thing you mentioned was, um, you know, just the interest rate environment. And we've been in a low interest rate environment for a good long while now. And it does, you know, it's getting lower and it, it just doesn't seem like anything is going to turn around anytime soon or, or forever. I'm sure at some point rates go up, but I don't, it doesn't look like anytime soon. How does an insurance company, what kind of strategies does an insurance company deploy to just manage this kind of interest rate environment, given the, I guess, some reliance on investment income for product profitability? How, how, what does an insurance company do? You know, since we've got a recovering actuary on the call, I'll uh, poke a funded actuary, you know, the old actuarial joke, the, the best way to make money in annuities is not selling them. I mean, I think we might, uh, we might be entering yeah. uh, that phase, but you know, in, all, in all seriousness, I mean, you have to look at the plan. You have to look at rates. Some carriers could go out on the risk spectrum, which I think is a little risky. So you could, you know, look at your overall portfolio quality and, you know, maybe take that down a few notches and try to make more yield and spread there. You know, I, I'm pretty interested in the idea of looking for some fee-based income, so addendums or riders that you could attach to some permanent products, whether annuities or permanent cash value life insurance. I think that looking for uh, thinking of a different type of a vehicle to, to earn some fee income, but there's really, you know, there's it's a three-legged stool, and you know, the one of them is falling apart, and so it's really hard unless you get mighty creative and. I do think we're going to see the emergence of what I call life assurance versus insurance. So you're going to see these products become much more of a utility play for the consumer and carriers probably looking for uh, riders to make some fee income, I would imagine. Yeah, I would agree with that, Nick. Uh, I think uh, when insurance company prices these long-term contracts, you know, they're not looking at today's interest rates. They're actually looking at interest rates uh, over at least what they foresee as interest rates over the next 30 years. and just because we're in a low interest rate environment now doesn't mean we're going to be in a low interest rate environment 15 or 20 years from now. And so many insurance companies will look at their portfolio rate as opposed to the new money rate and say, you know what, I can hang on a little while. I can try to get through this. And then the question is, how big are they? What kind of capital do they have? How long can they do that? And then they'll start changing products. As Nick mentioned, they're going to look for fee type products if they can. They're going to look for more riders. I think uh, disability income may be a place that they may want to go as well. I know people might be counterintuitive and think that disability income is not the right product line right now, but really disability income could be a nice uh, fee type product, uh, either attached to another product or, or something like that. So look for actually new products to come out, less interest sensitive products, products that uh, I even think uh, maybe annual renewable term might come back instead of the level term, which is Level term is more dependent on interest rates than annual renewables, and you could get some fairly low rates given our low mortality right now for annual renewable terms. So look for the carriers to be innovative in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and become more consumer-oriented, as well as fee kind of products like Nick mentioned. You know, Mark, I'd like to piggyback. I think you're right on the disability. I could even see a renaissance of some long-term care features, take a page out of the Affordable Care Act coming up with some different uh, ways to uh, you know, get to market and partner with facilities. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting innovations on product because, you know, like, like Mark said, you set this rate and you bet you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, but at the end of the day, you might be able to hold on for a little while, but you really do have to sort of be creative on product design, flexibility, and new features. So look for um, insurance companies to, to take sort of a Swiss army knife type of approach and have a bunch of different stuff 
and to be able to sell to the consumer. So they got to be able to attach to a consumer in a more consultative type of approach and offer a bunch of different, have the ability to offer a bunch of different fee-based products as opposed to really any kind of reliance on investment, investment income from a, from a narrowing spread type environment. I think you hit the so, nail on the head with uh, with engagement. I think I think insurance companies are going to want to engage more deeply than ever before with with their customers as well as potential new customers, so that they can do that multi product approach. Speaking of engagement, what sort of innovative ways are you seeing carriers or the distribution channel engaging with their customers? So you know that's interesting. I've always said you know. Usually the old way of thinking of engaging with my insurance company, something bad happened to me or my wife's filing a claim because I died. But I do think you're starting to see some really interesting connected products. You know, it sort of started with telematics on the property casualty auto side of the house uh, up to now, you know, connected homes and wearables when you're a work comp work site, you know, tracking the safety and health of workers as they work. Uh, on the life side, you're seeing, you know, the Vitality product, John Hancock, and a company called Surify and others I'm aware of are working with a number of carriers to to try to have some level of engagement, track your mobility and your steps, and almost uh, have some, I don't really like the word dynamic underwriting, because you really can't, you know, do post-issue underwriting per se, but looking at, here's a floor rate you have, and maybe you can get a little bit better rate. But I look at those engagement as much more of a, a lifetime value play trying to make sure that uh, you know you, you're staying relevant. I'm really intrigued even by sort of different ecosystems that could emerge. I'm also intrigued by you know being someone that you want that customer to trust for other information, whether it's retirement planning, insurance planning. And, and some carriers are doing a pretty good job of, of being that one-stop shop. And I think, so it's really content, it's connectivity, it's all of those things. And no one's really figured it out 100% yet, but uh, I think there's a lot of companies doing a lot of different things in that space. One of the things I mentioned at the outset was that there, was, there have been just some themes in the, in, the, in the insurance market from a technology perspective that have been underway for a while and may be accelerated now. And they've included things like AI, big data, wearables, and the like. And Nick, I know you're on the board I believe you're on the board of a company called Carpe Data, who I believe is uh, an AI big data business. What, what are they up to? So yeah, they're uh, they're a big data uh, AI shop, and you know, think of them as someone that a commercial carrier would partner with for basically adjudicating claims faster is one thing they can do. So you think about all the fraud in uh, work comp, and my back went out, and now I can't uh, you know work. But you just found out I ran a marathon in Ohio, and and I put it on some social platform. You know they can kind of help you uh, you know look at fraud, but I also say they can help you pay a claim faster too. If I said, hey, my back's out, and I put on Facebook, I'm at a wedding in a wheelchair, then you know it can help you pay claims faster too. It goes both ways. And then they're also working on models that uh, will help a carrier have a almost an ability to price the commercial insurance quicker because they can help you look at the risk of an entire business and enterprise. And, you know, they can do that on millions and millions of business across the United States. And they have pretty interesting proprietary models. And when I go walk around that building, there's a lot of young people way smarter than me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so it's pretty fun to walk around. Yeah. What other um, themes are you seeing on the AI or big data or wearable front? Well, this is tied to big data, but it's on the uh, underwriting side. Uh, 
I see it on the life insurance side, especially right now, insurance companies can't, cannot get fluids to underwrite. They can't get blood and other fluids that they normally would get via paramedical. So you're seeing major companies scramble in two fronts. One is to expand their current accelerated underwriting practices, which are the fluidless underwriting practices. And by expand, I mean expand both age and size. Some carriers are already up to $5 million of fluidless uh, accelerated underwriting to to get through this. Uh, You're also seeing a, a surge towards electronic medical records which has been slow to date. Uh, Companies are running to companies such as uh, Human API, which today probably captures, I don't know, 20% of the medical information in the United States, which is not by any means a majority, but to start. And I think think this situation that we're having here in the United States today is going to cause companies to accelerate that, move that forward. So I think it's going to accelerate it towards much, much less underwriting that where you might need paramed to go out and collect blood yeah i agree totally with what mark said it's it's uh you're, you're going to see carriers all life so when, when you can't get a paramed done an aps out there you're either uh, you're not going to be in business much longer if this continues one other thing though uh on the property casualty side you're seeing uh, artificial intelligence be used to adjudicate claims faster so think of you know if you can train a model an ai to look at a number of different deer hits and you can get a much more real-time instant uh, claim done. And, and so you're starting to see the ability to create much more efficiency, better customer experience, even with using drones possibly and, and spatial imagery from satellites and, and looking at roof damage. I mean, you're starting to be able to look at this claims process in a much more consumer-facing, friendly way and most carriers of any scale and significance are heading this way. And so I'm very bullish on the ability to, hey, take a picture of this uh, damage you have to your car. And rather than spend, you know, three months about it, some of us are getting down to a few hours, depending on, on what the claim looks like. So I think you're going to see a much better consumer experience. And also AI with customer acquisition, there's some firms out there that are really able to use a prediction model to look at my propensity to buy. and so. Now, with all of this comes a lot of regulatory issues as well. So you're starting to see at the NAIC, the Big Data Working Group, the Artificial Intelligence Working Group, uh, chaired by John Godfrey on North Dakota. And so you know, they're, they're, they have some issues too. So there's a lot of positives. I'm much more bullish than negative on these technologies. But if you can't explain the model, if you can't you know, show the consumer how it worked, you know, I always say it's pretty cool if my claim gets paid in 30 seconds, I'm going to be pretty pissed if I get rejected in 30 seconds. I won't think I had a fair shake. So there's a lot of regulatory issues with all of this. So we have to be very careful on how we do this. And I do think we're going to see some interesting regulation over the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I was on a, I was on a webinar uh, listening to uh, Susan Neely, who's the uh, uh, CEO of the ACLI. And they, uh, she was very bullish on working very closely with regulators to address some of these things, the uh, e-signature and some of the issues around that, as well as some of these AI issues as they relate to insurance, uh, adjudicating claims, underwriting, and things like that. So it's exciting. I, I think this will cause some change, uh, both on the regulatory side for the positive, as well as on the uh, business side for the positive. Cool. One of the things you guys mentioned was wearables. And I've got one of these whoop straps, which is a branded, you know, one of the branded 
wearables. And they, I guess, I guess it was about three or four days ago, pushed down this update where it said, hey, we've been tracking people that, ha- that are infected with the virus who have been wearing our strap. And they capture, you know, heart rate variation and heart rate and all these sorts of things. And they get and they sort of push down some. They were attempting to to push down at you. Hey, look, if you're if you're seeing the following trends in your heart rate variation, yeah, you know, they weren't saying you got you're infected or whatever. They're, they're like, you may want to just take a look, you know, see how, see how you're doing. So that's an example to me, anyway, of, of this trend of hey, this whole wearable thing was was out there anyway. But now with this desire to self detect and self-test yourself, et cetera, and so forth. It's the kind of thing that this whole crisis feels like it's going to accelerate the need and adoption for those types of technologies. How are you guys seeing what has been really the evolution of wearables within an insurance context, and where do you see that headed? I would say probably where it started was if you're willing to wear these things and let a company track it, or just like you're willing to let someone track your driving, it's kind of like, well, you're already a better risk on average. And so there, there really wasn't a lot of lift. I don't think actuarially speaking, I'll let Mark maybe chime in on that one. No, nope, you're, you're right, Nick. So, so I don't think, you know, there's, but now I think it's much more interesting where I almost could see, you know, really to your point about a whole new product coming out there, a connected life insurance product coming out there. I could see, you know, my daughter's a type one diabetic. I mean, these connected devices, whether it's a wearable or, her you know, blood glucose monitor, you can now see in real time how she's treating herself. And 10 years ago, the thought of uh, insuring a bunch of diabetics was probably unimaginable. Whereas now you can track these folks and realize, well, heck, they're probably better risk than, than I am, you know, if they control it well. So I'm pretty bullish on new products emerging, sort of what I always kind of call the, the non-consumers. I think there's some real opportunity to go after a bunch of people that don't traditionally fit into the model. And so the, the question is customer acquisition, you know, how do we get it so it's cheaper, et cetera. But I, I'm really bullish. And I do think with the COVID thing, and, and as it starts to be like in South Korea where they're tracking folks, I think we're probably going to have some of that here in the States. And, you know, you can geofence people and, and your watch maybe be able to tell you how close you are to someone, your phone, et cetera. And I will say some research I've done and some of the work we've done at our company if you do wear one of them, you're, you are a little bit more active. You're, you're more conscientious about it. And, and so I do think it leads to some interesting health behaviors and, and human psychology would probably confirm that. But I, I think that there's some really interesting new products we could look at. And I'm really intrigued with how do we go after these non-consumers, these people that don't traditionally fit into our funnel. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, the beginning of wearables was, were for the uh, very healthy, the people who are already cognizant of their health. I think uh, one of the next phases is to go after the people who aren't so healthy, such as the diabetics or maybe people who are overweight. And, and the insurance industry can cajole them via these wearables into doing the right things for lower premiums. And uh, it makes them, makes them a, a great customer and, and, and a healthier customer as well. I also believe that you got a taste of what I believe the wearables are going to happen in the future, which is they're going to do a much better job of monitoring our medical situation and will be able to eventually do things like predict the heart issues or predict blood pressure issues and things like that. And when that happens, we'll be able to get to the hospitals faster if, if that's necessary, or get medical attention faster. And the faster we get medical attention, the, the ultimately the healthier we are. So I see some very positive things coming out for the 
for the consumers in general for these wearables. Yeah, it, it's revealing because I think, I don't know to what extent, but to some extent, I think for some people, there's been this reluctance to to use these things that are like a right of privacy. I don't want anybody, I don't want to, you know, people know my business, et cetera, and so forth, which to some extent is a generational thing, which I think as time goes by, there's less of concern. But even now with like this, this crisis, it's like, well, I guess I would be willing to give up a lot of data on myself if I, if I could self-test, et cetera, and so forth. So it seems like that concern over privacy and things like that will kind of go out the window more and more, both just from a generational perspective, as well as just the impact of um, the impact of this crisis. Because it feels like we're going to need to get good as, as a country just dealing with these types of crises, everything from early alert to self-monitoring to vaccines and all that action, just the, just the whole thing. And this will just fit into that. So it feels like it's um, you know another trend that would get accelerated. I think you touched on a, a, a great point around privacy. I'd be curious, Nick, what you're seeing at your company with respect to AI and privacy and, and how those two interact and, and what do you see in the future? You know, we're we're still in the early stages of, of that, but I could put my old commissioner hat and talk to some other folks in the industry, and 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 and, and I tell people all the time, you know, privacy sort of went out the window in the '90s when we invented this thing called the internet and socialized it. You know, so we can sit here and say we want privacy, but the reality is, you know, I t- I told people all the time I would get uh, complaints as commissioner about someone's insurance getting canceled. Well, it turns out they posted something on Facebook about something really stupid. And, you know, I said, well, I, I can't really help you with that because I would have canceled you too. And so you know, I, I think that people need to realize that privacy really is an illusion anyway. And, and that there are some reasons why it actually is a good thing. I mean, this COVID is a great example of, of uh, you know, a, a, I think the public good almost trumps privacy a little bit here where, if we know there's a hotspot or we know there's a, a group of people that have it, we should work. It would really help the social and physical distancing. And so I think the future is going to be much more inclined to say it's almost a foregone conclusion. You really don't have privacy. Now, the question in my mind as it relates to insurance is what does that mean for cancellations, rates, renewability, or even the option to get insurance? So I do have some Concerns, I suppose you would say there around the public policy side of it around we, we need to make sure that insurance is a robust market, that people have access to the insurance they need, and that we, you know, because you drive weird hours, because you have a night shift job, doesn't mean that uh, you shouldn't be able to get insurance. And so there's going to be some pain points, I'll be honest, Mark, but uh, I, I think that privacy as we know it or thought we knew it 20, 30 years ago is dead. I, I agree with you, Dick. I think that especially with the millennials and the Gen Zs coming through, they view privacy very different than the boomers and, and Gen Xers. And so uh, as the baby boomers start uh, going by the wayside, uh, I think privacy will do the same. Yeah, absolutely. So, Nick, for any of your customers that are listening, any, anything you'd want them to know about what you guys are doing now, just whether it's respect to, to COVID or, 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 or anything else? Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, the company's open for business. They're they're doing a, a good job and they're doing right by their uh, their customers. So there's got a pretty good balance sheet. So we don't have any real issues. And and so at the end of the day, it's pretty well business as usual. But hopefully, we'll go back to a a more normal. Again, I'm more worried about some of the agents that are out there that don't shockingly we have agents in a lot of small towns that don't you know have the broadband they probably need. And and so I do worry about that. So. 
Some of the agents have to be a little bit more creative, but their offices are all open as well. So as far as COVID impacting our company, it's sort of uh, dislocated us and it's certainly a huge disruption, but I'm more worried about our members taking care of themselves and being safe and, and uh, we'll see them on the other side of this. Yeah, no, and, and you know, that's interesting. You mentioned the, your, your concern for some of your agents in, in areas that don't have broadband connectivity. And that's just another trend, right? Like every, every, people are going to need more and more connectivity going forward. And that's another thing I think as people walk away from this, as we, once we all get, get through this process, that, that will be one, uh, just a part of the residue from this. So Mark, any parting words before we sign off? I, I think we, we've covered so many areas, but, uh, I just like to uh, wish everybody uh, uh, the best of safety and uh, be careful in this uh, time. And we're we're thinking about you in in many different ways to try to help uh, to try to help you. Uh, and I couldn't All right. agree. I think everyone needs to just uh, take a deep breath, be safe. These things uh, will pass, and uh, I think we're actually going to come out of it better than we went into it. So, here, here, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 